Hey, this is Nick DiMatteo from Music Is Not A Genre. I just wanted to take a minute to talk to you about the service I use to record and distribute my podcasts. If you haven't heard about Anchor, let me tell you from experience, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Here's why. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. So please take a moment out. If you are planning to create, record, and distribute podcasts, take a look at Anchor. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hey, I'm Nick DiMatteo, and welcome to Music Is Not A Genre, the interview edition. This is the 25th edition of my interview sub-series. Thank you, as always, for watching and listening. Please uh, don't forget you can support this podcast and my music and everything I do at patreon.com slash music is not a genre or anchor.fm slash music is not a genre. My public hub is youtube.com slash Nick DiMatteo. Or you can get everything you want from nickdematteo.com. With me today is Danny Burstein. He is a New York City actor, period. Danny, how are you doing today? (laughs) I'm good. How are you? Okay, good. Uh, Getting over a little cold or, uh, you know, I've been sick for about a week, but uh, feeling good. Did you have COVID or or actually that bad? What's crazy is they said, no, you don't. And then the, the PCR changed its classification. And apparently I did. Uh, oh, pretty darn mild case. But, uh, you know, it, it, it feels still a little, you know, schmutzy in here. So, you know, I'm sorry. Uh, it's OK. It's OK. How are you? Uh, I'm OK. My computer decided to be a little funky. Um, oh, boy. Okay. Morning. And so I am. Just doing this from my phone. Normally, I do it at my computer, uh, my my desktop. I'm trying to find the best place to do this, but I'm just going to wander around my apartment a little bit. I'll put you, you there. Know, this is kind of makes it exciting. It's a bit of like an action film, and it's one of those kind of verite where the camera follows you down the hallway while you're talking. So you know, we can make it work. Exactly. It's that's what I was going for. Yeah, exactly. I figured. Yeah, you know. Yeah, a lot of prep for this. Yeah. Uh, so. Yeah, so am I, am, is this clear? Is it up or doing anything? Like every, uh, every now and then it'll freeze a little, but otherwise we're pretty good. Uh, let me just note seven minutes. All right. I'm going to get the best damn shot for you. Okay. <laughs> All right. Welcome to my apartment, by the way. It's lovely. Thank you. You're I see, lovely. I see. Oh, wow. That's so nice. I see you have a queen shirt on. What's that about? I do. From queen, uh, because I'm a big queen and <laughs> because I'm a big theater queen. And um, I went to Queens College. I'm a proud graduate of Queens College. Oh, um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. My dad taught at uh, Queens College for 53 years. He taught ancient Greek philosophy there. Oh, my and, God. Uh, there are three boys in my family, and the rule was, you know, graduated high school, you're going to Queens, and that was it. Um, and we also we all went to Queens College, and uh, it was great. I had a great education there, and uh, and that's pretty much. I, well, I was lucky enough when I was a kid, I got into the high school of performing arts, and that set me on my path. And then uh, after that, I went to Queens College, and uh, I met this incredible guy named Ed Greenberg there. And he set me off on my path. Hmm. Uh, he was my mentor. He ran the uh, St. Louis Muni. He was the executive producer out there. And he also opened up Lincoln Center, the musical theater of Lincoln Center with Richard Rogers. So okay. he was kind of uh, very famous for that. Wonderful director, wonderful teacher. And when I was 19, he said, you know, you got something, baby. Oh, and, uh, you know, one of those old time producers, he said, you know, why don't you come out to the Muni and I'll put you in the season, you know, in the ensemble. And, you know, when I was 19, he gave me my, my equity card. The rest oh. is, is history. 
That's incredible. Yeah. So did you live in Queens as well or? I did. I'm originally from the Bronx. Uh, my dad, we, we were living in the Bronx at that time. And then when I was five, my, that's when my dad got the job teaching there. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, nice. Yeah, I'm I'm um, reporting from Queens right now, so you know. Oh, really? Where where, where specifically? Uh, Astoria. Oh, in Astoria, wonderful. Yeah, Catherine and I've been here a little over two years. We were in Long Island City for a year before that. And, yeah, uh, not far. Yeah, have history in Sunnyside, like twenty years ago. So huh? you know. Yeah, I lived in Jackson Heights for a while. Very close. Oh, to nice, nice. Uh, yeah. One of my kids is obsessed with Jackson Heights because um, they read that it is the most diverse neighbor neighborhood in like most cities in the world or something. It is like in, that. in the world. It is the most diverse area in the world. Jackson That's Heights, Queens. Pretty incredible. Yeah, it is incredible. I agree. Uh, so um, I will start with the question. I always start with my guests, which is uh, how do we know each other? We met in the gutter. Where did <laughs> It was Rikers Island. And all I remember about you, Nick, is that you have very soft hands. That's it. It's the, yeah, I have a special lotion I use that, you know. Yeah. <laughs> we met at Jackie and Shannon's house. Jackie and Shannon, Shannon Arnold. We met at their house. Um, and it was, uh, what was it? Were we watching the Super Bowl? Something like that? Yeah, it was the Super Bowl. That's right. Yeah. So back in February. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was, a, it was. I just remember meeting you and your wife and we were sitting next to each other on the couch and just talking about the business. And uh, and it was lovely. We had a very nice time. It was a great. I love them. And uh, Catherine's known Jackie for over 20 years. And it's yeah. it's, you know, uh, it was it was a fun party because there were a lot of people there I didn't know. Right. And, uh, you know, it was one of those things where you're like, Ah, oh, yeah, some of these people I recognize, you know, but I have no idea from where or something like right. that. And and it was it was sort of this realization, you know, a day or two later, I was like, I think I was talking to a guy who I, you know, you know, <laughs> and it turned out to be you. And I'm like, oh man, that's so cool, you know. And it was a great conversation, but yeah, yeah, yeah. No. So yeah, so that's our long history of knowing each other. Very. Um, yeah, yeah, you're really near and dear, you know. <laughs> After now, this, yeah. Yeah, yes, that's right. <laughs> that's the hope, yeah. Uh, now, can you, so this is my other question. Yeah, I do so much preparation. Um, how uh, can you tell me, and you kind of started this a little bit earlier, yeah. uh, which was great, and I do actually have a, a question about that if it comes up again, but can yeah. you tell the folks out there in music is not a genre land, uh, what your story is, however you interpret that. Um, well, um, like I said, I was originally, I'm originally from the Bronx. And when I was five, we moved to Queens. And um, my, both my parents are teachers. My dad teaches ancient Greek philosophy. And my mom teaches painting. And uh, when I was younger, they gave me books to read. And uh, I hated to read. That's the truth. I just hated reading books. And my dad would give me this. He said, this is a fantastic book. You're going to love it. Just couldn't. After like 10, 15 pages, I'd go, I'm bored. And I, and I wouldn't finish the book. And um, so uh, he eventually gave me a play. And I read it straight through. And I loved the fact that these guys were talking to one another and they, it sounded like real life. Uh, they were angry and they were happy and they were loving and, and flippant and, and they cursed sometimes. And, and so it just kept giving me play after play. And that started me reading uh, when I was younger, I was, you know, about nine, 10 where I really started to get into plays and, then in junior high school in Queens at a place called Parsons Junior High School, which was uh, kind of a <laughs> kind of a hellhole. Um, you know, I saw people cut with razor blades and shit like that. It was really, really an awful school. We used to call it Parsons Prison. Uh, but I had a wonderful teacher there, an English teacher, who said, you know, hey, I think you got something. One of those kinds of things. And uh, we did a production of The Me Nobody Knows together. And it's this wonderful musical that was from the early 70s. And he said, you know, you should go to the high school of performing arts. And I said, 
great. What's the High School of Performing Arts? And he explained it to me. And he told me that Liza Minnelli went there and Ben Vereen went there. And, and I said, well, it's fantastic. What do I have to do? He said, well, you have to perform a couple of monologues. And I said, great. What's a monologue? And he explained that to me. And, and that, that was my audition. And the year I auditioned, I was 13, um, well over 4,000 uh, kids auditioned and 127 made it in. And I had a good day. You know, I got lucky. And that changed my life, that audition, that day. Um, and I was accepted. And uh, I remember the very first day, a guy named Jerry Escow, who ran the, um, who ran the uh, drama department of the High School of Performing Arts, uh, he was... Uh, one of Brando's standbys in Streetcar, and he also directed Most Happy Fella in London, a wonderful guy. He told us all, you know, we're just first day of school. He said, if you don't want to be an actor for the rest of your life, there's the door. You know, and we all stayed. And, you know, I was excited. I was kind of intrigued by that. And it also was the only thing that I really, really loved doing more than anything, you know, and so I, I had no idea. And to this day, I have no idea what I would do if I hadn't uh, become an actor, because I pretty much am terrible at everything else. Um, so I was lucky enough. Uh, and over the course of those four years, we had some amazing teachers there. And that set me on my path. And we had a wonderful uh, bunch of uh, we had a wonderful class and. I, you know, I just got very, very lucky. And then on to Queens College, as I mentioned uh, later. And then after Queens College, I thought, well, I'm going to take the world by storm. I'm going to be the next Marlon Brando, you know. Mm -hmm. And everybody, all the casting directors would look at my resume when I was 22. And they'd say, well, that's nice. You have all these musicals on your resume from the Muni. So you do musicals. And I'd say, no, I mean, well, yes, but no, I also do plays and I also do film and TV. I can do anything. And they said, well, you don't have any experience in that department. So sorry. So I had to, so I, it was a year of that. And then after a year of that, I went and got my uh, graduate degree, my master's at UC San Diego, um, partly because uh, I thought it would help me in that department to put on, uh, to put some dramatic roles on my resume and to get the training that I needed maybe for that kind of stuff. Um, and also partly because my parents said, well, you know, if you have your master's, you can teach. So I thought, okay, you know, I'll satisfy, I'll kill two birds uh, if I do that. And I did. And I came back here in 1990 and um, just started working and never stopped. Wow. Yeah, I got very, very lucky along the way. That's that's the truth. Very, very lucky. Well, I, yeah, and I, I always feel like luck comes partly from just being there and active and being prepared for the opportunities that arise, you know. Absolutely. I, I honestly feel that everybody gets their chance. It's just that it's just a matter of whether you're ready for that chance when it comes along, you know. So you have to be ready. You have to keep preparing. You have to keep working and um, having the right audition material. Um, and then, you know, being a little, little bit lucky. I, I'm jumping uh, way ahead, but, you know, I was 42, 43 when uh, I got a call to do the Drowsy Chaperone. Um, but that only came about because, I, you know, I was doing jobs. I was working, but I was very much an actor under the radar. Happily, but very much under the radar. And then a friend of mine called and he said, can you do me a favor? Uh, can you do a reading for me tomorrow? It's insane, but I just booked a commercial and I have to, and it's tomorrow and I have to take it and it's a lot of money. But this is a, you know, I thought of you because it's uh, this role has to play like seven different characters and with seven different accents and and he said, maybe you can do it. Would you please give it a shot? And, you know, it's tomorrow. And I thought, oh, Jesus. Okay. All right. Yeah, sure. Sure. <laughs> and I uh, did that thing, did that reading the next day. I don't even remember what the reading was. Um, but in the audience of that reading was the producer of the Drowsy Chaperone, who saw me and called me the next day and said, 
listen, I saw you in this reading and I thought you were wonderful. And I think there's a role in this show that you could do. And would you come and do the reading of it? And I was on the phone listening to this guy, Roy Miller, who's no longer with us, lovely guy. And I was about to say no, but, and my wife was sitting right next to me and she, she heard, heard the whole conversation and I was about to say no, you know, drowsy chaperones. It was the dumbest title I've ever heard, you know, and she went like this, do it, do it, do it. It sounds good. And I went, okay. Okay. Yeah. Great. Yeah. I'll do it. Great. I'll see you, you know, next week. And I wound up doing that first reading and then other readings and then out of town and then in New York and, and one thing led to another, but that was the first show that I would say that put me on the map where people were all of a sudden going, aren't you that guy from drowsy chaper? Where have you been? You know, like, who are you? Well, you know, I've been right here just working, doing my thing. Um, and that, uh, that's, you know, you have to have that kind of luck, but it's just about being there and saying yes. I know students always ask me, um, you know, starting, how do you start out? And I tell them, say yes to everything within moderation, of course. I, you know, don't do porn. You know, don't do porn, kids. But uh, I do, you know, say yes to everything. Go to readings. Um, go to every audition that you can. You know, get that kind of experience so it's not such a big deal. So every audition isn't the audition, you know, the that monkey on your back. And so you get good at it and get good at letting it go and moving forward and getting better at it. It's all just a stupid skill. You know, it's a terrible way to get a job auditioning, but it's what we do. And so you have to make the best of it. Um, it's, it's super, you know, nerve wracking, but you know, after a while you sort of go, well, I think they need me more than I need them. Mm. And I'm just going to go in there and have all the confidence in the world. And I'm going to teach them how to do this role correctly. And that's the attitude I started going in there with, uh, you know, at first, of course, you, all you are is nervous, nervous, nervous. And then you start to develop, uh, techniques, to making the audition your own, making it, um, making it work for yourself. Um, and so you can <laughs> move on with them afterwards. The best kinds of auditions are the ones where you can do the damn thing and then walk out and then move on to the next one or move on to something else yeah. and forget about it, you know? Yeah. And then it comes, it's icing on the cake, you know? It is, yeah, kind of diminishing the impact of each individual audition. And at the same time, you're getting all this skill that makes every subsequent one feel like, yeah, this is just what I do. It's, it's a part of the job. Exactly. Know? That's right. Now, you mentioned students. Are you, do you teach now? or I do, I do master classes and um, that kind of thing. I've done it for years. When I was a kid... I did uh, Merrily We Roll Along in, uh, at Queens College that my mentor, Ed Greenberg, directed. Right. And it, it had just closed on Broadway like three months before. And there were all these different scripts, versions of the scripts, uh, you know, floating around. And it was, you know, a famous flop on Broadway and heartbreaking for the cast and everybody. And uh, yet my teacher wanted to do it. And I was cast as Franklin Shepard. And I thought, wow, okay. And I read the script and I thought, how the hell do you make sense of this? The guy is such a shit. Why would anybody want to follow him on this journey? And I had so many questions about the, about the show. And I didn't know what to do with the role. And a friend of mine said, well, you know who you should ask? You should ask Stephen Sondheim. And I thought, well, yeah, of course. Yeah, sure, I should ask Stephen Sana. And he went, no, 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 I, here's his address. I have it. And so I wrote him a letter, and I asked him all these questions out of the blue. And within five days, I got a letter back from him saying, Dear Danny, all those questions would have to be answered in a letter the size of War and Peace. So look, here's my number. Give me a call, and we'll talk. And when I got him on the phone, he said, 
look, uh, this is, uh, let's just get together. We'll sit down and talk and we'll figure it out. And okay, I thought, you know, and then a couple of weeks, I went to his townhouse in Turtle Bay. And as I was walking in, Lapine was walking out, you know, introduced him. They're working on this show called Sunday in the Park. You know, I was like, oh, okay, yeah. I, I never heard of him before. I was like, I never heard of the show. He walked in, he said, sit down on the couch. He said, I'll be right back. Um, a minute later, he came back with a carafe of white wine, like that size, <laughs> put it on the table between us, put two glasses uh, between us and sat opposite me and said, okay, what do you want to know? And for three hours, we talked about not only Merrily, but we talked about his career. We talked about theater in general. Uh, he gossiped like crazy about different people. Um, it was fascinating and wonderful. And he was giving me uh, a mini course in theater in those three hours. And Oscar Hammerstein had done that for him when, uh, when he was, I could get very emotional about it because um, I just, it, it was such a beautiful thing for him to do. And that's why I teach. That's why I do classes. That's why I give back because if Stephen Sondheim could do it, mm. uh, then certainly Danny Burstein could do it too. And I think that's, that's what it's about at the end of the day, giving back and doing kind things and um, keeping our um, art form vital and, and, um, and interesting and relevant and all those good things. And that's beautiful. And I, I think that, you know, so many people I know in the business, whether they're struggling or mid, you know, doing fine or something above that, it's so caught up in the career aspect of things or in the work itself. And, and you're immersed in that, that, you know, you don't often think of, well, what can I do to kind of pass this on? And when someone right, like Hammerstein or Sondheim can, can do that, can, can devote that much time to someone they don't even know, Right. To really pass on their wisdom and knowledge and even just the love, like live, being in that room with the love of what they've created and what you're doing with it or what your interest is in it, that that's infectious. And it really, to me, kind of creates these tendrils of connection that are what keep uh, what can be a very, you know, brutal and difficult uh, business at times, so vibrant and exciting and alive because you know there are people there working at every level who love what they do so much that they want to share that love with others. Yeah. And, Beautiful. Yeah. yeah. And it's great that you're doing the same thing. Do you feel like you're the, that you've, the fact that your parents uh, or teachers had an influence on that as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think teaching is the, most noble of professions. Um, I would, I would actually, in my emails to Steve, I would sometimes call him rabbi, which, which means, <laughs> right, right. Uh, which he loved. And he thought that if he wasn't uh, a songwriter, that he would be a teacher. Oh. Uh, so, yeah. Now you mentioned, uh, well, there were a couple things, questions here. Um, yeah, please. So, you you mentioned this I'm I'm fascinated by because I had an acting teacher back in the early O's. Who, um, his his philosophy was be judicious in what you say yes to, in the sense that uh, if you say yes to everything, you may you may be cutting off some other thing that you you know or whatever. And and at the time, it made sense to me uh, because. I didn't really know what I was doing and kind of trying to figure out, well, I'm, you know, I want to do this, but I don't want to do that. But the, the more I kind of lived in the, in the world of auditioning and all of that, I, I realized that there are things that you're saying no to that you have no idea where they might lead and that you can continue to say yes to things Mm -hmm. uh, until you see where they're going. And if, and if it's a feeling like, Oh, this is really taking hold in me and I really want to do this, then you go for it and you, you, you know, blow it out and do a great job. Um, 
But that's to say no, just off the bat, because there's some preconceived notion about how something might fit into your career. Um, to me, I kind of, I grew to believe that it seemed like something where you may have just passed up an opportunity that led you to the next thing that would be where, you know, you want to go. But how do yeah. You- yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of what, uh, kind of like what I was saying earlier about saying yes to everything when you're starting out, especially um, when you're when you need to make connections, because um, you never. It's just as you said, you never know. Um, as I've gotten older, there are things that I've been offered that I know. Like everybody thinks I'm a singer. I'm not really a singer at all. My wife was a singer. You know, she could open her mouth and, you know, like it, it was you know, gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Uh, my old line about that was, uh, you know, she opened her mouth and her heart fell out. Um, that That's how she sounded. For me, you know, I never took singing lessons per se. I was just an actor. And they said, do you sing? And, you know, at, a, at an audition, I would go, yes, I do. You know, <laughs> not really having ever taken lessons. Do you tap? I remember I did um, uh, Anything Goes in community theater. Do you tap? Yes, I do. You know, I'd never tapped before, but I, you know, got myself into, a, you know, a, a class in New York. There was a big tap dancing class uh, led by a guy named Phil Black um, at his studios. And I, you know, ran and crammed tap dancing lessons. Um, and that's pretty much how I learned to do things. Um and but as I've gotten older, there are things that I've been offered, uh, as I was as I was saying, like, you know, do you want to sing with the Israeli symphony? <laughs> no, because they, they heard me sing, you know, unless I'm singing something that sounds like a Jew from the Bronx that, you know, they're not going to want to hear that. You know, right. yeah, I mean, I, I don't have one of those pretty voices. That's not me. I'm a storyteller, a kind of voice, a character actor who happens to sing. Um and, you know, if they want that, that's fine. But most of the time they, you know, when you sing with a symphony, they want you to sing really pretty too. Mm-hmm. And that's what I do. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's, so I've learned to, as I've gotten older, go, nope, you know what? I don't like doing, I don't even like doing that. Like cabaret. I don't like doing cabaret, you know, getting up there and singing with everybody. It's just, it's not me. It makes me uncomfortable. I remember when I was younger, I was at this evening where I was part of the evening singing a song in this cabaret and all these incredible artists, Marsha, well, probably before, way before your time, but uh, Brent Barrett and, and Marshall Lewis and all these incredible, incredible singers were on the uh, lineup that night. And they were, these are people who were really good at it. They were backstage going, shit, what the hell is that one? They were crazy nervous. And I'm thinking, I don't even like doing this. What am I doing here? And it, but it was a big thing for me that moment where I went, wait a minute. I don't even have to do this. I'm done. I'm not singing at anybody's cabaret anymore. And, you know, I turned down everybody from Steve Sondheim to Hal Prince. And I just, yeah, it's just not my thing. I'll do it in a show where I've had five weeks to rehearse that one number in context. That makes sense to me. Um, but doing it just standing there naked, just not my thing. I just, I just never had it. Never had that thing. So I learned to say no to the things that uh, made me that uncomfortable. But things that I've never tried before that are exciting to me, that scare me a little bit, mm. that absolutely, absolutely. Mm. I'll dive right into that where I have no idea how, where this is going to go. Absolutely. So you're, and, and I guess a lot of that comes from, you've done so much that if, I think part of our journey is we, we sort of maybe know who we are as artists, but not really until we've tested ourselves in the, in the waters and, and then the world kind of tells us what fits often. And then our inner, you know, kind of um, response will say, Oh, this feels like me. So the right. more you're in the business, you're like, yeah, that just doesn't feel like me. You know, maybe I would have done it if I, you know, needed the the break or the money, you know, 20 years ago, right. but not at this point. Right. Right. And I, I got to a point where I 
realized this was very early on where I realized I hated doing the same damn thing over and over again. And the business wants you to do that. Everybody wants you to, you know, fit into this little, you know, circle, this pigeonhole. And I just went, "Eh, I don't like that. And I kept telling my agents, you have to think about me differently than any other client you have, because I don't want to do what I did before. I want to do something completely different. Every time I, you know, after Drowsy Chaperone, I got all these offers for Latin lovers, you know, and I said no to all of them. After um, South Pacific, I got all these offers for New Yorky Wheeler Dealer kind of guys. And, yeah. and uh, after Fiddler, every Jew in the world, you know, that kind of thing. And I thought, <laughs> no, no. But I remember years ago, and I, I told my agents this when, my, when we first started working together in 1990, um, and uh, he, my, one of my agents, Phil Edelman, sent me an email. He said, uh, I think I've got it. Um, he, it was a movie, an indie movie called Nor'easter. And the character was a gay, deaf pedophile that worked in a pizza shop in Maine. And I thought, that's me, <laughs> you know? <laughs> that's what I'm going to do. It's completely different yes. from anything I'd ever done. And it's so out there and different and wacky and and it meant so much kind of interest introspection and uh, and work and you know I studied ASL uh, for two months before I uh, before I wound up doing the film I had three teachers helping me uh, it was a lot of work but you know I wound up doing the film and having a great great time doing it because it was so different. Um, and yeah, that's what I want to do. Challenge myself artistically that way. I love that. Uh, what, what was the film? Nor'easter. Nor'easter. Got it. Storm, yeah. Right. Uh, yeah, no, I love that because it's just that, that idea that it, it is very easy to just keep doing what you do, especially if you, you know, are being asked to do those roles. So it takes some, uh, you know, courage and like you say, to challenge yourself, but also to challenge the, you know, uh, stability of your career to say, I'm going to do something that no one is looking for me to do because I want to do it. Yeah. I mean, I wound up turning down a lot of work uh, when I really could have used the money, you know, and trying to raise two boys. Um, Yeah. It was when I really needed the money, Uh, but things turned out, uh, and things turned up also when I needed them. Uh, South Pacific came along and I was with that show for two and a half years on Broadway. And that paid for my kids' college. Uh-huh. You know, so that was, you know, just, I've been lucky. I just got lucky. Yeah, working hard, but yeah, yeah, you know, I guess it's yeah. a little bit both, right? Uh, I, I have to break for one second sure. because... For some reason, uh, I guess Zoom has changed their roles and these one-on-ones used to be unlimited time. Right, yeah. Apparently they're not anymore. Oh! Sad. I'm better than good. You can start it. I hope you're recording all of this. I am, yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And good, because, you know, Zoom now does this where you can only speak for limited amounts of time, but we pulled it back together in record time. Yes, we did. That's right. Well, you did. Uh, team effort, team effort. Yeah. Uh, so, so this is a question that I uh, am personally have a personal investment in, and I asked Jackie this, and I'm very curious about your answer. Which, and I'll tell you uh, what Jackie's answer was as kind of a kickoff, as you know well, being you know in Moulin Rouge with her, uh, she is a musical theater person. But her claim is she's not really into musicals. She came from a very strong music background. Mm. And, and this is what got her in, into there. And I know for myself, I have often tended to keep the music and the acting separate because I'm so passionate about the music in a very specific way that that's what I want to do. Mm. When I do musicals, it's because they just happen and they, you know, and that works but the acting has been sort of this, I would rather just do acting because I find for myself that the performance of acting is stronger when you're focusing on just acting and the performance of music is stronger when you're focusing on just the music. That's not necessarily always true. That's my personal you know, thing. Mm-hmm. But you have kind of alluded to the fact that you say that you're not a singer and that you have, uh, have certainly 
pursued other forms of acting and you know, I know you're just shooting something. How would you say your general like uh, opinion was or, or experience was of uh, musicals when you started and how is it now? Uh, my opinion of musicals when I started. Um, well, you know, I never chose to do musicals. I liked musicals when I was a kid. Um, my parents, I don't come from a particularly musical family. You know, my, no, nobody plays an instrument at home or anything like that or did much singing. And, you know, nobody, I wasn't one of those families. My wife grew up, they all sang in the car, you know, that kind of thing, right. like the King family. Um, me, I've not, none of that. None of that. You know, go to your room. That was about as much singing as we had. But uh, when I was a kid, somebody said they were doing Oklahoma. And, you know, would you like some experience in community theater? And I was 15 and I was already a year into the High School of Performing Arts. And so I auditioned with a song. Uh, but I had no experience. Uh, and then when I got out of uh, when I started acting professionally, I never chose to do musicals per se. I was you know, thinking about, as I mentioned, being a, uh, a legit uh, straight actor in plays. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't make a living at it. And I, and I thought I knew I had to uh, be smarter about it. And I had friends who were in musicals on Broadway and off Broadway, and they had long-term contracts and they were getting paid pretty well. And the musicals tended to last longer. Now, I loved musicals as a kid. I loved cast recordings. My parents had some cast recordings, old Nelson Eddy and Jeanette McDonald's uh, 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 version of Oklahoma and uh, a city center version from the 60s of Finian's Rainbow. Um, musicals like that, My Fair Lady. Uh, but not many, but a lot of, uh, oh gosh, uh, you know, old, oh, very, very old musicals. Anyway, uh, Gilbert and Sullivan is what I was trying to think of. Oh, whoa, yeah. And that, that, that were wonderful. And th th that was the extent of my parents' uh, uh, cast recordings. Right. There weren't many, but the ones that were there were <clears throat> pretty interesting and good. So uh, I liked listening to them, but I, li I listened to mostly rock and roll. I listened to the Beatles and the Eagles and uh, Steve Miller Band and, the, you know, groups like that. And James Taylor and, you know, folk rock and Carol uh, King. Um, I remember when I was five in 1969, there was we had a tiny little black and white television. And it was uh, the new it was the news and it was coming from England saying that the Beatles had just been on top of the roof of uh, Abbey of Ab was it Abbey Road or is it Apple Records? It was that they were on the roof of Apple Records and. And they showed about 15 seconds of them singing Get Back. Yeah. And I was five. You know, I didn't, all I knew were, you know, twinkle, twinkle, little star, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> and I heard Get Back as a five-year-old, and I walked up to the television, and I grabbed it, you know, like that. And, and, I, and I thought to myself, I didn't say it out loud, but I thought to myself, that is the greatest song I have ever heard in my life. Mm. Five-year-old Danny. And that's kind of how music got me uh. because of the Beatles, because of Get Back in that moment the, uh, on the news. And uh, that's when I started listening to music more and more on the radio and all the hits of the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Yeah. Um, those were the ones that really got me into music. I have, and, to, I have to cut in real quick because it's an amazing coincidence. Um, I, I'm in a Beatles cover band now. I've been doing it for years. Ah, that's fantastic. Like, yeah. And um, my, my dad, who has been a performer his entire life, nightclubs and all those kinds of things. That's cool. Uh, singer, piano player, uh, said, uh, has told me often that the very first song I ever sang live in public was at a gig he was doing. It was Get Back. Really? And it was the, and I sang it because it had just hit the charts at the time. I was a year and a half old. Yeah. And I only knew how to say JoJo and Get Back. And that was pretty much it. But, you know, <laughs> it was enough for him. 
And uh, yeah, so that, I have a real special connection to that song. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, that's it. It's, it's, it did it for me as well. And, um, and then, you know, as I got older, uh, you know, as I said, musicals chose me. And uh, I enjoyed doing them when I would do them. Uh, and they would generally last longer than a play. Mm-hmm. And pay a little more (laughs) and uh so you know it was a decent way to make a living but you know i at the same time i always fell back on doing um you know television and films and and plays as well because uh you know that's where i initially wanted to be but nowadays i just people ask me all the time what do you like doing most right and for me, it's just whatever's the most interesting project. Um, when Alex Timbers asked me to meet him to talk about Moulin Rouge, we met in a diner on 72nd Street. And uh, he put the script in front of me. And he said, read that. And I'll see you back here in a week. You know, let me know what you think about this character and this show. And, and I read it and I thought, well, that's unlike anything I'd ever done before. It's mm-hmm. kind of dirty, sexy a uh, father figure who was mysterious yet, you know, passionate and a producer, a brilliant guy, an impresario. Um, and I thought, yeah. And I said to, I went back a week later and I said, yeah, I'd like to do that because it's unlike anything I'd ever done before, but I have that same story with loads of different projects that I said that I've said yes to because they were so different and fun. And, um, and I thought, Oh, this is kind of scary. Uh, I really want to give it a shot and play because I want to find, I want to find a way in. That's basically what I'm always looking for. Like if I can sort of see, if I I read the script or I read or I hear a song over and over again, whatever it is, I I have to get a spark where I sort of go, yeah, okay. What if I did this to, to get in there to, you know, and that, will spark my imagination, I know, in rehearsal. And then I read as much as possible uh, about the project. Um, if it's a revival, I, I read as much about the project before, you know, in, from other productions um, and learn as much as I can and bring all that stuff into the first rehearsal uh, as if I'm you know, wearing it in a backpack and then go from there just to do something new and different and with the role, or if it's never been done before, then, then just making it up. But it's, it's always got to be, for me, it's got to be something new and exciting. Having said that, doesn't always work that way. You know, and sometimes somebody will offer you, you know, $20,000 to go and work on this project and you go, and, and you only have to be there for a week and you go, Yes, absolutely. <laughs> right. Sure. You know, that'll take care of things for a little while and pay yeah. for my vacation, you know, when I need it. What are you what were you working on yesterday? Yesterday I was working on a, a film and I'm still working on it. Mm-hmm. A film called Molly and Max. Uh Guy Aristotle Osney from Saturday Night Live, uh, who's very, very funny, and Zasha Mamet. Those are the two people who are wow. the leads of the film and um michael litvak is the uh director and okay i'm just having a lot of fun on it it's just in fact yeah i'm playing a couple of characters on it one of them is is uh, aristotle's uh father who's who's a fish who's a fish (laughs) yeah (laughs) it's a love story between the two of them in the very far future oh my god yeah so uh it's it's pretty it's a lot of fun it really is a lot of fun. That's awesome. Yeah. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah, a lot of makeup. A lot, know, yeah. Right? <laughs> the fish. Look, My God. Looks like a cre- the creature from the Black Lagoon. It's one of those kinds of looks. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, and lots of stuff going on. Lots of good stuff. You know, I did a pilot in, um, in Atlanta. I've just been to Vancouver a few times to work on um, a prequel to the show Grease. Uh, it's called Rise of the Pink Ladies. So I've been working on that as well. Um, yeah, a lot of good stuff. That's is that a, a stage thing or a film thing? No, it's I think it's on Paramount Plus that will oh. be coming up. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah. Oh. 
I, there's a, a comment you made a couple of times about fear, uh, like the, the, certain things scare you, you know, that yeah. I have this um, kind of uh, feel, I guess, philosophy that there are two ways that things scare me, either collapse or expanse. When I have a fear where it's pressure and it's collapsing mm-hmm. in on me, I'm like, that's not for me. That's not something. But if I have a fear where I'm like, I don't know where this is headed. I, it could be, you know, and I've never done this before. Then yeah. I go towards that. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, as that's that's absolutely right. I mean, you want to you don't know where as artists, you know, we don't know where we're going exactly, you know, in the process. And that's okay. And, and it is about the journey, you know, uh, and finding things. And it won't always be successful, but the journey was successful. You did learn things along the way mm-hmm. and you did grow as an artist along the way. Even if you, you realize that that's not where my strengths are. Um, I'll never forget my, my, uh, one of my, the guys I worked with who gave me my, uh, my first job on Broadway, the old, the older actor, Tony Randall. Um, he was in the original production of Inherit the Wind with Paul Muni, mm-hmm. uh, the great, great Paul Muni. Uh, and he said every day he would come in to rehearsal with a different look or a different feel. And some days he would you know, put white streaks in his hair and, and walk with a stone in his shoe and disheveled clothes and then very put together and, you know, tie all the way up and make him stand differently. He tried all these different things every day until he weeded out what didn't work and held on to what did for the character of Drummond, the lead character. And um, he said he wasn't afraid to fail. Mm. He was just, it was just about the process, just about finding things that made, that sparked his imagination that made him feel more like the character uh, homing in on what worked. Yeah. And he said it was a real lesson and it taught me too, that I shouldn't be afraid, you know, and sort of part of you is always performing, you know, when you're in a rehearsal, you know, that everybody's there looking at you, uh, hoping that the show is going well. And, (laughs) but that's not what the rehearsal process should necessarily be about. You know, you, it's okay to fail and try think, you know what, I'm going to try the character this way today. Let's right. see if it works, if we find something. Um, and that's what he did every day until he found what really worked, what was really important for that character. And yeah, I have a lot of respect for that. That, that room to explore at, at a place where you don't feel like you need to have all the answers already and be at peak performance level. Yeah, that's yeah. it. I I have I I had an experience on. I was actually a musical a few years ago where the director was kind of looking for everybody to be exactly right out of the gate, and so we had to come kind of come through some uh, rough waters there to get to a point where I was explaining to him, no, I like to find what I'm doing and and make it as organic as possible, or I'm going to end up on that stage, not feeling anything and, and, and not being connected. And that's going to just domino affect everything else that's going on. And yeah. he eventually understood because, but it took two to three weeks to where I, I finally felt like, Oh, I've got something here and brought it out. And he's like, well, why didn't you come with that in the, in the beginning? I'm like, well, it didn't happen in the beginning. You know, I right. didn't find it. Right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So having you, that director who, who supports that decision, I think is really important. Yeah. Yeah. There are a few, only a few that I've ever worked with that really, really do that. Uh, obviously one that I've worked with many times, Bartlett Shear, um, has you sit around the table you know, if it's a five-week process, they'll have you sit around the table for the first two weeks until you go, all right, I just have to stand up. And you start standing up around the table where you have to get up because it necessitates it, you know? Your, your, that need to move forward ha- has to happen. And then he sees that and, and feels like, oh, you're ready to get up. But, but when we're at the table, we're discussing all the nitty-gritty, 
all the important things that will spark your imagination, the reasons why you're doing certain things. So you understand everything organically so you can build on that when you do get up. All the stuff that you said wasn't happening in that rehearsal process, unfortunately. Um, But yeah, anyway, that's why I love working with him because it's such um, an intellectual effort Uh. uh, initially. It is, it is almost only that, figuring that kind of uh, stuff out. And that takes you to the next place after that. I love that you said intellectual effort, but that you also said there's a point in the rehearsal when you just need to get up out of your seat. Yeah. You know, that I, I there was some, I can't remember the guy's name. It's against this actor, teacher I had way back, assigned a book and that that particular book that that teacher his kind of tagline was if if you feel it your body will reveal it (laughs) and I can't remember who it was but but you know it took me years to understand that at at least the way my you know self works I have to start from a place of understanding it here and breaking it down and and it's not just about I mean it is about the lines but it's about like understanding the character and the story and all of that stuff and then um but it's not until it kind of descends into my body where I'm feeling it like like tingle where I really go oh okay I've got this now you know maybe not 100% but it's enough for me to finally get up on my feet and go for it you know yeah 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 right <laughs> You know, and, and it's an it's an interesting place to come from, I think, because a lot of, you know, the old school is that, um, you know, inside out, outside in. And, and you've got Strasburg and all those people who you got to, you know, you're working all in here and then it comes mm-hmm. out and then you've got the outside in where it's like, I'm going to put the character on. I don't think there should necessarily be a distinction between the two. It's it's kind of like therapy. Find the mix that works for you. And then and I up. completely agree. I completely agree. Whatever works. I've been with actors who do every kind of different way and figure it out. There's that old, what is that song, that story from Marathon Man when uh, Dustin Hoffman was working with Laurence Olivier and Dustin Hoffman hadn't slept in two and a half days for this scene. And, um, and people always go, oh, and, you know, and Laurence Olivier said to him, my dear boy, why don't you try acting? Um, but but that's that works. That that what that what he's talking about, Olivier works for him, right? But it wouldn't not necessarily work for Dustin Hoffman. Dustin Hoffman was doing what worked for him. You can't argue with the fact that they're both fucking great actors. Right. Period. You know. Yeah. So whatever works, I'm completely in agreement with you, Nick. Whatever works whatever makes it real and truthful for you, because at the end of the day, that's, that's what all art is or should be, or can be some, some a real form, uh, a form of reality that uh, sparks some kind of understanding in the viewer, some kind of simpatico, mm. emotional or physical or whatever. Um, and that I, you know, allows you to gain some kind of insight into your own life, into the world, and hopefully, you know, changes your way of thinking or enlightens your way of thinking and um, maybe makes you a better person, maybe makes the world a better place, you know, on and on. That's what great art can do. And we have the opportunity to do that through music, through uh, music, through theater, through drama. And uh, that's why I think, you know, at the end of the day, the arts are vitally important. Yeah. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. That was, that was really well said. And, you know, we, uh, I have three kids and. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. They're, and they're all doing great. And during the pandemic, there was this um, kind of, as things were ramping back up to activity in schools again, the one of the last things to return were the arts. Uh, one of the first things to return were was you know football and wrestling and all of that, and and that's wow. fine. It's great fate. People, sports people, it's awesome for them. But right. my my brother's daughter, who's big in musical theaters, uh, she just graduated high school. 
she, the, my brother and his wife had to go to the school board to advocate for the return of the theater program in the midst of them having every other program up and running because they kept claiming that, oh, well, theater people are talking right next to each other and it's not safe or something like that. And it was more to me just an excuse that, again, you're seeing school systems not valuing the arts. Yeah, it's too bad because, I mean, scientific study after study shows that the arts, uh, you know, can definitely, whether you go into the arts or not, doesn't even matter, but they make them, uh, they make the students uh, better, uh, better students and more well-rounded and more empathetic and smarter and better listeners um, on and on. Um, which, so it is too bad that they don't uh, actually take it as seriously as they should. Yeah. And, you know, I, it's a, it's a back and forth. It's, it, it's the same as any kind of, uh, you know, development and progress in this world where it's, you see it happening and then it does this and then you hope that it comes here again. And, you know, nobody really quite knows where we are at this point, but uh, it's, it, it's to me vital that there are not just artists in the world. Cause I find that to be extremely vital and think some things that we take for granted that we don't realize that every single day of our lives in some form, we are exposed to some art, whether it's, background music in a store or you know some graphic that somebody did when we're watching a even a non-fiction tv show or anything like that there's just arts everywhere but then you have artists like you know like you or Sondheim who are also saying who are advocating for it whether it's publicly or just within the people that we know to say it's it's beyond just a pleasurable experience or something that you can learn from both of which are extremely important, but it can actually change you as a person and enlighten you and make you better at other things. Yeah. (laughs) I agree. And, uh, you know, I, I have one more question. Yeah. And, uh, it's, it's just for my curiosity. I'm a Gemini. I like long walks on the beach. Okay. Okay. Gemini. How did (laughs) How do Gemini's and Sagittarius uh, connect? I have no idea. I, I right, I yeah. Know. I believe that that Catherine knows that. I'll have to ask her later. But you know, please. Okay. <laughs> um, you mentioned, and I think this is a uh, something that people might be interested in when they're thinking of kind of career trajectory. But you mentioned that you you said you moved back here in 1990. Is that right? Yeah, from San Diego, from UCSD, yeah, where I and, went to grad. Right, that's right. And then your your breakthrough was Drowsy Chaperone. Correct. What did you do in between? I did, gosh, I did a bunch of uh, off-Broadway shows. Um, Tony Randall hired me to do his uh, National Actors Theater, which was was a repertory company on Broadway. Um, My first Broadway show was... um, a show called a play called a little hotel on the side with Tony Randall and Lynn Redgrave and um, another guy, young guy making his uh, Broadway debut named Rob Lowe. Um, A lot of, a lot of fun things. Um, I did a great musical off Broadway that I loved called uh, weird romance with Alan Menken and David Spencer. They wrote this, they wrote the uh, score. Um, it was uh, the first time that Alan Menken was going back to uh, do a show off Broadway. And it was his first show without Howard Ashman, who had just died. Mm-hmm. Um, and Ellen Green was in it. And we were at the same place where, that they did uh, Little Shop of Horrors, the WPA theater off Broadway. And so it was a big return to uh, theater for Alan. And, um, you know, getting to work with him and still knowing him as a friend, uh, is a sublime thing. Uh, and, uh, you know, making friends and making connections all along the way and doing lots of law and orders. <laughs> uh, <laughs> of um, thank God for law and order uh, yeah. and all the residuals um, uh-huh. over the years. Uh, and that kind of thing, building up, building up my resume, just doing lots of shows here and there. Um, I did uh, the first revival of uh, Company on Broadway in 1995. Mm. 
And that was wonderful working with Steve there, uh, working with Steve before that. I did uh, Merrily, We Roll Along off Broadway right. this time. Oh. And that was a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, I, I mean, it was filled with doing lots of work. And I was, you know, extremely, extremely lucky to do some really, really wonderful work and have great teachers. I did an off-Broadway play. It was just a three-hander with uh, Sigourney Weaver and John Lithgow. Um, it, it was wonderful where, where I, was a, I was a teacher and Sigourney came into my, to take my class. It was at the Flea Theater downtown. And then uh, John played her husband who came to gather her and take her back, you know, because she shouldn't have been taking a, you know, a creative writing class. You know, we're, we're upper class and we don't do this kind of thing, the arts. Uh, it was a wonderful A.R. Gurney play. Um, and we premiered that off Broadway. And, uh, you know, so many things like that, that I just, I honestly just have to pinch myself that I've had this lovely, lovely career where I've just kept on working um, and under the radar and happily under the radar. And still, and, you know, the only people who really know who the hell I am are the people in my building, maybe my next door neighbors <laughs> and my, you know, and some of the people I've worked with. But other than that, you know, I have a normal kind of a life. And that's kind of all that I ever wanted. When I was a kid, I just, I thought, I don't give a shit about the, uh, the fame or the money or anything like that. All I want is to just have a normal life like my parents had, uh, have with, uh, you know, a wife and kids and a, and a car and a home and to have a, that kind of normalcy. And then to go to work every night and have the respect of my peers. The rest is all whatever it is, whatever people make up. But for me, I just wanted a normal kind of life. And I've been able to do that for the most part. I mean, life has other plans sometimes, God knows. But uh, other than that, I just wanted to have that kind of a life, a normal, happy um, life where I was just doing whatever I wanted to do, uh, doing the kind of work that I wanted to do. It's a great place to be and a testament to you, really, that you can have such a full and fulfilling career and just be a guy, you know? Yeah, You're that's not, it. That's, and that's, I, you know, I think that's, uh, that is a worthy goal for anyone, really. You know, uh, well, I, I have to, uh, is there anything that you would like to uh, leave with the audience, whether it's a thought or a credit or anything like that or a, Gosh, um, I, I just, I guess I would just encourage everybody to, uh, to uh, make, when given a choice, to um, make the loving choice. And that means uh, being kind first and listening. Uh, everybody has a story. Everybody's coming to the situation from a different place and you never know who you're going to run into and what their story is. And so um, when given the choice uh, to say something or do something, uh, let it be the loving choice. Oh, yeah, that, that might, that might be the, the best closing answer that I've ever received. So oh, good. Thank you for that. And thank you for spending this time with me. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, an honor. Uh, thank you. Thank you. And thank you to everyone out there for watching and listening. As always, uh, this is Danny Burstein. I will uh, put some information down there if you want to explore more. And uh, I will talk to you next episode. You're done. <laughs> that was great. Oh, thank you. Yeah, man. You're good at this. Thanks. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.